In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. For today's episode, uh, we've got Representative Ro Khanna from California. This is a really interesting uh, congressman who has a, a lot of big ideas. Uh, today, we're going to focus in specifically on a big idea he has to sort of bring federalism into the Medicare for All debate. Uh, this is not really something the presidential candidates have been talking about, but I think it's really interesting if you want to think about what's a politically practical route forward. Fascinating conversation. Check it out. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Representative Ro Khanna, is from the California 17th Congressional District that is out in the uh, Silicon Valley area, basically. Is that? Yeah. And uh, he has a bill that we wanted to talk about. It's called the State-Based Universal Health Care Act. Um, and the, the basic idea of this is to lay the groundwork for states to create sort of single-payer health care plans of, of their own. Is that right? Exactly. One of the obstacles to states pursuing single-payer has been that they haven't had the revenue. Many states have constitutions that don't allow them to deficit spend. When Vermont tried it, they were not able to use the Medicare or Medicaid money, and that the numbers just didn't work up. So this bill, very simply put, would let states use their federal money to institute a single-payer bill, provided that they cover 95% of people with a goal of covering 100% within five years, and provided they provide better benefits than the current federal program. And so the, the basic issue here, right, is under our current, like, fragmented system, the federal government is still, a, like, a very big player in a healthcare player. financing, right? Yeah. So, so you look at Medicare primarily, then Medicaid, Affordable Care Act subsidies. It's like the federal government is a, is a giant share of the spending. So in any kind of plan, you want to, like— reuse that money. Right? Exactly. And currently, if you're a state government, if you're, you know, a, a liberal state and you're like, okay, you know, um, Senate's not going for this uh, Medicare for all thing, but maybe maybe we will in California, right? Your problem is you're paying into the federal system. Right. And you would need to get uh, a lot of uh, waivers approved by, by HHS. Correct. You would have to get all those wa- waivers approved. And for practical purposes, you couldn't use the uh, $360 billion or so that uh, in California, the Medicare, Medicaid federal funding is. You have to, you wouldn't be uh, have access to that. This would allow you to have access for that funding. Now, some economists uh, fairly have said that maybe that's not enough, even if you got the federal waiver and you could consider uh, supplemental funding based on the insurance gap. So in California, it's about 9% of people aren't covered. You could say, 
okay, the federal government, in addition to allowing the waivers, should provide states that are going to hit this goal supplemental federal matching funds. Uh, the point, though, is that when you talk to Vermont's governor who tried single payer, when you talk to uh, people in Massachusetts or California about why they aren't getting this, this done, it's it's the numbers, and this bill would make the numbers work. And so uh, currently, you, you could get those waivers on a sort of discretionary basis, right? You could, but from a practical perspective, it, you know, it would have to be piecemeal, and you would have to get ERISA waivers, you would have to, and it would be a cumbersome process. This would make it very clear that if you had a plan that you gave HHS that said, you have 95% coverage and you're providing better benefits than you get all at, all at once. You get the waiver. So since since the show is called The Weeds, let's let's talk about ERISA waivers. Yes. Because uh, I think that's probably something, you know, even even people who, who know Medicare, know Medicaid are, are maybe not familiar with this. So ERISA is basically if you're a public uh, employee plan or a pension plan, then there are requirements that ERISA – uh, regulates in terms of uh, the regulation of those plans. And so if you want to be providing health care uh, to people in uh, who are in those pension plans, then you need a waiver that uh, it's not going to be governed by ERISA, and this does that. Right. So, so the idea of ERISA is to prevent people from getting their their pensions and other things sort of ripped off. Exactly. Right. Um, and so in the spirit of ERISA, you could give people a, a Medicare for all type program instead of the health insurance that they've been purchasing. But by the letter of the law, you, you couldn't do that. People people have their plans. And so a state government saying, oh, no, here we have this new thing would, would violate that. Right. And, and you could see a certain concern. I mean, if a state government was not run by a progressive governor and you didn't have the right standards, one could say, are they trying to uh, uh, take advantage of these retirees and 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 uh, these pensioners and provide some uh, below quality health care, and so we want to regulate it. And that's why the key in my in the bill is the requirement that the benefits be better than what they're getting. Uh, from the federal provided plans. Right. I mean, because we talk sort of all the time, people talk loosely about universal health insurance, right? right. But I mean, health insurance can mean a lot of things. We, we were just doing our benefit selections here. And, right. you know, we have like three different plans we can pick from. Right. Uh, one of them is really cheap, but like it's also garbage. Um, and so you, th- the idea of this is you can't say, okay, we're getting all these waivers and we're giving everyone insurance, quote unquote, that has a fifteen thousand dollars deductible. Exactly, or that isn't going to cover you if you're if you need, uh, God forbid, cancer treatment, or if you're in the hospital for sixty days. It's got to at least be what Medicare currently is providing. Now we can ar- believe, and I believe, that Medicare needs to be strengthened and cover long term care and hearing. Uh, and we could increase Medicare. But if Medicare is strengthened at the federal level, then they would have to make sure that the states were providing better benefits. Okay, so the so the standard in your legislation is pegged to current Medicare. All right, it's pegged to the current benefits, uh, the highest benefits that the, the, the uh, of a plan that is the, the federal dollars are going mm-hmm. to. So cu- Medicare benefits are better than Medicaid benefits. So it would be current Medicare. It has to be better than current Medicare. Mm-hmm. And so I know. I mean, this is something that I know trips people up because because Medicare for all, as yes. it's discussed in politics, is actually describing a program that's in a lot of ways significantly more generous than the the existing Medicare program. Yes, I mean Medicare. So, for for example, Medicaid, not Medicare, covers long-term care, mm-hmm. right? So this is why you hear the stories of seniors 
who may have someone who has Alzheimer's or someone who needs long-term care literally having to go bankrupt before they get coverage because Medicare doesn't cover it Medica- then Medicaid does. And Medicaid has a, a like a, an assets test, right? So you right. have, to, yeah, you so have you, to spend down or somehow get rid of everything in order to get those benefits. Exactly. And and you basically almost have to go to, to the level of, of, of bankruptcy. I mean, not literal bankruptcy, but uh, bankrupting your, your life savings. So one of the things that Jayapal's bill or Sanders's bill, Jayapal in the House, does is it says Medicare should be covering long-term care. Medicare also should be covering dental costs. Medicare should be covering hearing costs. So part of Medicare for All's debate is do we expand the benefits of uh, Medicare? And then, of course, it's reducing the, the, the co-pays. I mean, Medicare still can have fairly high co-pays in certain situations of hospitalization. Uh, so that's the first point. And then the second point is, of course, expanding the coverage of Medicare beyond people who are 65. Right. But so, but so in your bill, a state could go for a program that's comparable to Medicare's coverage rather Correct. than to the, the more generous Medicare for All scheme. So you're, you're trying to make sure that you, you get something better get than some- the current coverage, but not necessarily that full sort of benefits package from the, the, the Medicare for All legislation. Correct, because there, there would be no way to define that at a federal – I mean, I suppose you could could pre, preemptively define it, but then you would have to give more funding. I mean, you couldn't say right. uh, use the same funding to get better – to get better benefits. So as long as they're giving the same benefits, and this is a way so you don't have people scaring seniors saying, oh, you're going to lose something. Mm-hmm. You're going to at least get uh, what what you have. And so I should be clear in case pe- people don't know you, you are a, a proponent of the sort of main Jayapal's Medicare for All bill. In, I'm, in the House. I'm a huge proponent. I mean, and Partly, look, Ted Kennedy, as we were talking before the podcast, had this bill in 1971. Mm-hmm. In 71, Jimmy Carter ran on a single-payer uh, bill in, in 1976. And so this is long overdue. I believe it's the only way you're going to actually reduce costs from 17% of health care, uh, which is currently GDP. It's the only way to c- get costs down, and it's the only way to improve benefits. And so to me, that is what makes economic sense. It what, it's what makes moral sense. But to get to there, I think we want states to be laboratories of innovation, like you had in Canada, where you had Saskatchewan, the province, start with single payer, and then it became uh, more widely adopted. Right. So uh, this is interesting because we've seen you know a, a lot of different candidates, a lot of different bills, ideas about sort of more incremental steps to, right. to expanding coverage. And so the the philosophy that you're taking here is somewhat different from these other kinds of things, right? Is to say essentially, well, we need to facilitate a single-payer program in, in one state. And so I wonder, or, you know, could be more than one state. Right. Uh, but what what sort of makes you think that that's a, a smart approach to take? I think we need an all-of-the-above approach. So if tomorrow we have a progressive president who puts Medicare for all b- before a Congress and Senate and we can pass it uh, with a transition plan, I think that's ideal. But Senator Warren just came out with a, a, a view that she would do this in year three of her presidency. So what are we doing those first two years? Well, it would be great if on day one of a progressive president they signed this bill and allowed to California or a Massachusetts to pass single pair and show that uh, as a laboratory of democracy, it's working. And and so this is something that can allow states to innovate and have a single pair approach while we work uh, uh, simultaneously on federal legislation. And from a federal perspective, this bill would not require any new 
revenue, right? It, it would not. I mean, look, look, I just want to be fair about it. I, I believe that you can get there based on uh, just the transfer of funding from uh, the federal programs. Some economists have looked at this and said, no, you're going to need a little bit more revenue. Uh, and so you could argue that you may need some supplemental federal funding for the insurance gap, but it's not significant. Right. But I mean, the point is this, this you could potentially get a, a member of Congress who doesn't want to vote for legislation that will increase taxes, yes. might say, okay, well, I can vote for Connor's bill because yeah. it doesn't do that. And then and then it kicks down to some state where, you know, it, more progressive public opinion, more progressive governor wants to take that challenge on. Uh, absolutely. And it allows the math to work for that progressive governor uh, to be able to do it because they it's almost impossible to, to get the numbers to work without that federal funding. The interesting thing is the National Review, a conservative publication, uh, basically criticized my plan saying, oh, OK, it's a federalist approach. We like that. But they're not federalists when it comes to conservative solutions. So they're only federalists con con when it comes to lefty solutions like single pair. Uh, the National Review ended up having to issue a correction because, as I pointed out, I said it doesn't actually mandate a single pair system. It, mm -hmm. What it says is a state has to have 95 percent coverage and better benefits than the existing federal program. So if you can figure out a magical conservative way of doing that, uh, I don't know a one, but you, you, it would qualify. So it's actually uh, something that even uh, – Conservatives should get behind on a federalist pr principle because it's it's only prescribing the goals, not the means. I think they're probably not going to get behind it. <laughs> you never know. You never know. But but it does give the ability of, of a Joe Manchin uh, or a Coons in Delaware to get behind it. I, right. I, I could see a Democratic caucus getting behind this approach. Right. I mean, th that's what seems to be the advantage is that yeah. it lets a – more cautious or more moderate or more politically uh, whatever Democrat do it and sort of pass the buck then to California and New York and Massachusetts and, and other places. And the, and the second thing it does, candidly, is every governor who, uh, who's running on single pair, uh, and there have been a lot, including in my states, then can't just say, oh, we well, what, what we're going to do is send a letter into Donald Trump to say we want a federal waiver and until then we don't do anything. No, go pass a single pair system like the uh, campaigns called for and have a trigger be, uh, okay, this will go into effect when there is a federal waiver. All right. Uh, with that, let's, let's take a break. And, and then I do want to talk about that, that state politics. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. -P. In U.S. working forests, or 
forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. As you were just mentioning there, we, we now have uh, in the Bloor states in California um, a lot of elected officials sort of nominally committed uh, to, to creating state-based single-payer plans. Do you think people would really move forward uh, if, if this federal framework were put in place? Yes, and that was the purpose of my bill is to say uh, in California, for example, the uh, California State Senate has already passed a single pair. The California nurses are behind it. The governor, Governor Newsom, ran saying he was going to make single pair one of his highest priorities. This bill says, okay, you can act, California. Don't wait. Uh, act. You can make it uh, contingent on a federal waiver. Mm-hmm. You can put that into the legislation. Uh, but uh, don't wait until we get a progressive president to start the process. Mm-hmm. So how do you sort of envision this then working at, at a state level? Do you think states can act to bring down uh, the sort of payment rates in the way that Sanders and Warren and others seem to be anticipating in, in their schemes here? I do, especially a state as big as California. I mean, you could have a savings when it comes to administrative costs. You know, in Palo Alto, for example, the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, they literally have 40 people employed just to maximize billing, uh, to to try to figure out how do you maximize billing for different procedures. Well, in a single-payer system, you uh, wouldn't need that. You can reduce the hospital facility fees. uh, You could reduce uh, pharmaceutical costs. So I think that there would be uh, an extraordinary amount of savings, and you use that money then to cover more people and provide them with better benefits. So do you think states can reduce pharmaceutical payments in the same way? Because, I mean, in all these plans I've seen, right, one of the things they, they envision right. is the federal government doing some kind of bargaining or, or price control um, the way foreign countries do. Right. Uh, but states don't don't seem to, to take that path currently. I think it's harder for states, certainly harder for smaller states to have as much leverage. But I think a state like California, where you're talking about 35 million people almost, would have a significant amount of bargaining ability. Uh, now, uh, drug prices are a bit tougher because, uh, you know, they, they're they still competing uh, with 49 other states. And, uh, you know, maybe some drug companies will threaten to boycott the California market if they move too aggressively, whereas you can't boycott the United States market. So I, I, I acknowledge that states have slightly less leverage, mm-hmm. and that's why ultimately we need a federal solution. Uh, but uh, I, I think there's nothing stopping a few progressive states from implementing this. I mean, Romney Care in Massachusetts was what led to the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you could either have a smaller state do it where it may be logistically easier or a very blue state like mine in California do it where we've got plenty of billionaires and we've got plenty of <laughs> corporations that uh, could help uh, share some of the burden. Well, and, and California is um, – you know, it's it's the largest state, uh, so it, it makes it unusual in in this regard, right. right? I mean, California has roughly the population of Canada, right? Right, uh, larger yeah. than, than than many European countries, right? And so, probably has a 
a degree of leverage right. that, you know, a Vermont or, or somebody lacks, right? I mean, with, with the auto companies and the um, emissions, regu- this has been a, a thing ongoing, right. right? But like when California sets a market standard, oftentimes companies have to meet it right. when they, they might walk away from a smaller state. Right. And this was the case of the privacy law, the California privacy law, which may basically is right now serving as the regulatory uh, environment for the entire country. Uh, so I, I do think California, with its uh, population size and the fact that it's the sixth largest economy, 15% of American U.S. GDP, has a fair amount of leverage, particularly on hospitals, particularly uh, on uh, costs of providers, and to some extent on on pharmaceuticals as well. All right. So you you think this has a better chance of passing in Congress yes. than some of the, the more far-reaching bills that you, you've signed on to? <laughs> well, I think all of the bills have a chance of passing. Uh, it requires the right political moment and right. president. But I think this one can unify the Democratic caucus, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I think I could see a, a case where Bernie Sanders is president in uh, 2020 or, uh, or someone else is president, uh, and uh, you have this bill come up, the House votes for it, and a progressive president could get this through the Senate. Uh, so that's that's the the advantage. Right. And do you think, you know, I mean, if a state was to go and, and do this, right, or, or a few, what kind of impact do you think that has on the kind of national dialogue, right? Does that just like stall momentum or, or build it? Well, I think partly they need to do it well. But I think if they can show that they've reached universal coverage, if they can show that people are saving money because they don't have these exorbitant premiums that they're having to pay, that they don't have these high co-pays, and that they're getting better coverage, then that becomes an impetus for federal regulation and federal legislation. I mean, that's what happened with Saskatchewan in Canada. And that's what has happened in some ways with the Medicaid expansion debate, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people have seen even in red states, well, why are we being left out of Medicaid expansion? This makes no sense. And it's what happened in Medicaid. I think Arizona adopted Medicaid in 1982, right? Mm -hmm. So having some states move, and if there's a good experience with it, uh, I think creates the right incentive. Now, the opposite happened with Vermont, which Republicans have used as these absurd talking points saying, well, Vermont tried it and it didn't work. They don't tell you that there weren't these waiver, this waiver in place. And mm-hmm. if you talk to the governor who implemented it, he will tell you that if this waiver existed, he would have been able to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an interesting, you know, model of change that I think has fallen out of a lot of people's heads. Um, In Canada, though, as you say, I mean, I think a lot of American uh, sort of single-payer activists are inspired by the the Canadian example. And this did start in one one of the smaller Canadian provinces. Um, And they had, you know, they had some real struggles making it work at first. Uh, we we did an episode, I, I think, about the the doctors in Saskatchewan went on strike. Um, yep. it wasn't it wasn't like a trivial problem, but making it work there is what laid the foundation for the for the bigger program. Absolutely. And the there's no doubt, and it would be naive to think when you have a transition to a system that you're not going to have certain kinks that have to be worked out. And of course, you're going to have to be bringing down costs, so there are going to be people who are going to be upset. I mean, if I was a CEO of a hospital, I would probably be upset about my compensation. If I was a pharmaceutical company, I'd be upset. If I was an insurance company, I would be upset. Uh, so all of that can be worked out at a at a state level. And the advantage is also this is probably going to happen in a blue state where you also have the largest political will 
to do it and to take on those fights, uh, which are easier in a blue state than if you have to be fighting in the entire country all at once. Right. I mean, it, it lets you sort of uh, have a little more room for maneuver if you have a, a population and a set of elected officials who are more enthusiastic, right? Uh, you, you can you can get things done. Right. And look, I, I believe Medicare for All ultimately will deal with the cost equation, not having our uh, healthcare costs be more than 17% of GDP, I believe ultimately is going to allow be- better benefits. But the one thing that is incontrovertible is it's going to cover more people. It's mm-hmm. going to cover people who don't have good healthcare. And if you come from a blue state where that is a huge value, uh, that put aside the cost argument and put aside the uh, argument on better benefits, but we just as a moral matter believe everyone should have health care, then you're going to have more people willing to fight and look at the kinks and be say, okay, the kinks are worth it because health care is a human right than if you're coming at it just from a cost perspective and, self- and benefits for the middle class perspective and don't have that moral consideration. And so the, the blue states, I think you have a better chance of working out the kinks. And so speaking of which, why is the threshold 95% coverage? Um, that That's a lot of people, but right. it's, it's not 100% of people. Well, what, what's your thinking on that? Well, it gets to 100% within five years. So it says, you know, when you're starting out to, to, on that first year, uh, to, to require 100% when the insurance gap in California right now is 9%. So it would be 4% better than the current insurance gap is is a pretty big lift already. I think it would be— in, a, Insurance gap, they're sorry, just meaning the, 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 the number of people. The, the number of people who are not insured, who don't have insurance, mm-hmm. which is much higher in a state like Texas than California. But even California, they're about 9%. The last I looked, 8 to 9% of people in California who have no health insurance. This would say at least get it to 95%. So actually, why is it so high in California now? Because in, in Texas, they haven't expanded Medicaid. So right. that, this is a huge uninsured population accounted for by that. But what's, what's going on in California? You know, that's— uh, I don't want to give a, a false answer. I mean, I imagine that some of uh, some of it may be the undocumented population. Mm-hmm. Some of it, uh, it may be people who can't afford the uh, Affordable Care Act and, mm-hmm. and the, the premiums. Uh, some of it may be people who just don't want to buy uh, health care insurance given the cost of premiums and, and make that decision and are okay getting the penalty, which isn't enforced as much. But uh, there are a number of, of reasons uh, for it, and, and which is why you know, I think the uh, the New York Times article was done by a colleague of of, of, of yours, and she had an economist, which I thought the most legitimate criticism, which I mentioned a couple times, is even with this federal money, maybe that's not enough to get 100%, And which is why I think, in addition, we should be open to federal matching funds for a state that is really going to make 100% coverage. But so in a more diverse state like California, though, it seems like to get even to 95, much as 100, you are going to have to give benefits to the undocumented population, right? Yes, and the bill says residents, uh, similarly to uh, Sanders's bill and to Pramila's bill in in the House, it says it will cover all residents, which which means that uh, some of those people will be undocumented. Right. So I mean, that's a that's a tough issue politically. I think for for a lot of members, it I mean, is maybe not in California. Maybe not. But, but again, this is one of the the, the reasons I think states can can do it. Mm-hmm. And the residents are is it's an ambiguous uh, uh, term. So <laughs> I, I suppose you could have a plan. Uh, that a state, you know, it would be up to the Health and Human Services Secretary 
to approve. My guess is the politics of California would include people who are undocumented, but I, I imagine a state could uh, not include it, and I don't necessarily think it would be rejected just based on that. Mm-hmm, it would mm-hmm. be on the discretion of the president's policy. But you could see a president saying, well, I, uh, I want to improve coverage, and I'm not going to disapprove a plan just because of that. Right. All right, let's take another break here, and then I, I want to ask some, some more philosophical questions here. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so we were talking uh, sort of sort of b- before the show about cost estimates on, on these kind of plans, and and I take it you are more um, optimistic about the potential savings of a of a single payer system than uh, some some of the the talk that's out there. I am. I mean, I I guess I just look at it very intuitively. Uh, if you're taking out the marketing costs, and you're taking out the administrative costs, and you're taking out the excessive insurance profits and you're taking out the pharmaceutical costs, why wouldn't you save money? And the argument is increased utilization. I mean, Mm -hmm. you look at all these models, and their argument is uh, the reason you're not saving as much money is increased utilization. Let's just be clear what that means. They're saying you're not saving money because more people are going to get health care. I mean, and doesn't that mean that that may lead to better preventive care and better outcomes? And back in the 1970s, uh, Richard Nixon's Health and Human Services scored Ted Kennedy's single-payer bill and made an assumption that it was going to be 66% of national health care expenditure. And today, for example, the Warren bill, uh, health care plan, she's making an assumption, or some of these, or, or Sanders, they're often assuming 120 or 130% of national health expenditure, meaning that it's going to cost even more than cur- the current system because more people are going to utilize it and inflation. I think that uh, we would be pleasantly surprised. I think you can have far more savings uh, than the current models uh, anticipate. So, I mean, essentially what we're saying is so so unit costs go down right. in, in everybody's yes. understanding of this. Um, yes. But then also, I mean, by design, like the goal is for more people to get health care yes. than currently are. So utilization goes up. And right. there's a question of how do those factors sort of balance. Uh, something I always wonder about this is where does the extra utilization come from? Because I That's I mean, a great point. I, I meet a lot of people who have struggles with employment, never like a surgeon, right? Right. Who, who's like can't find a job anywhere. Right. Um, and so if, if lots more people are getting medical care, like, like where does that care literally occur? You mean where does it occur with doctors and hospitals and nurses? Yeah. Well, I think we would need to be funding more hospitals, more hospitals in minority communities, more rural hospitals, more Indian health services. We need more doctors. We need more nurses. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think there is definitely 
the, the, the case that we're going to need more medical professionals and more medical facilities, which is why I think ultimately it will be job creating mm-hmm. in, in addition to providing better benefits. Now, in some cases, in rural hospitals, in some cases, uh, uh, the fact that you're going to have many more people come in may just help the revenue of that hospital, and they have much more capacity than they currently have patients. Right. I mean, we've had a trend in rural areas yeah. toward there not being enough demand to sustain medical facilities, then they're closing, and then that makes it harder for people to to kind of live in the area, right? Exactly. And so this kind of provision could could help, like, set a floor, at least, under that kind of thing. Absolutely. And the Medicare for All plans that Bernie Sanders, Pramila have, have especially focused grants to rural hospitals to keep them open and, and different Medicare reimbursement rates for rural hospitals to, to keep them open. And, of course, this will increase the, the patient demand, so you don't have to have consolidation and drive out an hour. But the, argue, the, the, the point you raise is actually a practical, very good one, because all of these, the, whether it's the Bernie plan or whichever Medicare for all plan, it, there does need to be thought about how do you get more doctors? How do you get more nurses? How do you get more hospitals? How do you just increase the capacity of the country uh, to provide this care? Right. But I mean, because in your district, right, is, is not rural. and. No. Everything, I mean, not just healthcare, right? But like everything that's happening in in the valley is comes down to supply constraints at this point, right? I mean, <laughs> there's housing supply difficulties, right. there's transportation difficulties. I, I have never gone to the hospital in Palo Alto, but right. but I mean, I assume it's the same thing, right? I mean, it's not like the hospitals are shutting down for lack of patients, right? The no. question is like, can nurses like commute? To the hospital, like, like, how yeah, how, no. are we, how are we going to get care to people who need it? Right. No, I mean, obviously, that we have a huge housing problem, and the problem is that people are having to commute on uh, salaries of under a hundred thousand dollars, which probably are are, are nurses uh, from an hour and a half away. I mean, that's a broader issue that our region has to solve, which is to figure out how do we get tech companies to to create jobs in other parts of the state and other parts of the country. How do we have more affordable housing? But to, to your point, it, it is going to be have to be part of a Medicare for all uh, fix. If we get people uh, in my district, more people having access to health care, we're going to have to figure out where we're going to house the, the, the additional nurses, where we're going to have to house uh, additional people uh, doing some of the uh, uh, clerical tasks at, uh, at hospitals. Mm-hmm. And just, so do you think uh, there are things we, we could do to expand the supply of, of doctors, for example, stuff, stuff we should do along those lines? I, I've been looking into uh, it. I mean, one of the, uh, the questions is, can you have targeted immigration of doctors linked to areas that, that need them mm-hmm. and, and nurses? So there may be certain areas where we, we want to have uh, a lot of doctors and nurses coming from from overseas. So the other thing is we probably want to expand the with the AMA the number of uh, medical schools and doctors and, and nurses that we're graduating yeah. and, and, and figure out how we uh, structurally get that change. Now, that's probably politically tough. I mean, I think a lot of people don't know this, right? Yeah. But so the, the actual, like, number of new residency slots is capped. It's uh, capped. By, it's a natural monopoly. By, by law. And so as a result, I mean, it, it's actually fascinating if you look at the, uh, like, the MCAT scores of new doctors has been going up and up and up. I and didn't the, know that. And yeah, and the number of men admitted to medical school keeps going down because more women right. can go into the profession, which is good. But yeah. the way it works now, it's like every every new doctor, like, literally squeezes out an old one. And I mean, maybe our 
current generation of doctors is like way smarter than the ones from 30 years ago, uh, but they seem fine in the past. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people like could use the extra health Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we have to think smartly about expanding uh, the number of doctors, nurses, and of course, especially with the role of artificial intelligence and technology, right? I mean, so much of uh, radiology or certain functions may be able to be done by computers, which yeah. actually may make it that that you can have more more doctors doing other tasks that uh, won't be automated. So the role of technology also, I think, is an interesting uh, uh, is, is part of the equation. Are you, are you optimistic about that? You think we can have some some real kind of technical breakthroughs that that help with healthcare supply? I, I am. I mean, there was a there's a company by District that uh, is working on a artificial intelligence technology to read uh, the scans of people, who, uh, women who go in uh, to see if they have breast cancer. Well, it turns out, and my understanding, obviously not as a doctor, but what this per- person was telling me about his company, it turns out that the false positive is huge on women mm. when they go in uh, for a, uh, a scan for breast cancer. And then it often takes a month or two months until you get verification. Well, if you could, and it takes two doctors looking at these scans. Well, if you just made one of those doctors automated artificial intelligence, you still have a human review. Uh, you a decrease the amount of time that uh, someone would be given a false positive, uh, and you increase the actual uh, reliability of the test, and you're able to do a lot more more patients. So there are, I think, uses of technology that can be very promising. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, right? I mean, this is what people want, right? It's not just to be able to go see a doctor, but to get, like, effective treatment, right? I mean, like, to get a screening and be told quickly that you're okay is, like, that's way better than you got to wait two months and get a subsequent test, right? I mean, right. it's like that's 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 what it's about that, on some level is like actually getting our health problems taken care of. Absolutely. And the, the other thing is it would bring some standard in terms of billing, right? I mean, for example, there's some insurance companies that if you are a doctor and you email your patient, uh, you can't bill that. The, hmm. There are others that uh, you can bill it. And so some doctors have this perverse incentive. I mean, no matter how good of a doctor you are, if you're not going to get charged uh, for an email course, you're probably going to be more likely to say, come on in and see me. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think one of the things you could do with, with a single-payer system is have certain standard practices that at least are incentivizing uh, the, the right behavior. And we may, as a society, say, no, for certain things, we don't want email communication. We want uh, the doctor to see the person. For other things, we may say, no, the email or remote uh, communication is fine. Right, right. So so the, the issue here is communications methods have changed. Yep. It could be that the most efficient way to understand a problem is like you just sit at your desk, you ask your doctor a question, you know, on email, whatever else, they get back to you. Nobody needs to take time off. Nobody needs a, a long office visit. But if you're a doctor, like, you you need to be able to get paid for your work. Right. And if you can get reimbursed for an office visit but can't get reimbursed for spending an hour answering 10 emails, then, like, you have a problem. Exactly. And most economists will tell you, regardless of whether you feel that a 
visit should be compensated over email, and, and most people probably feel like they should, you should at least have one standard. And having one standard instead of three or four different standards with different incentives is just economically more efficient. And, mm-hmm. you know, the chairman of the Fed, who was, who was not liberal yesterday, was at the Budget Committee, and he made this point three times. He said, we spend 17% of our GDP on health care, far more, almost double most other Western democracies. And as he put it, uh, it's not like we get better health outcomes. It's not mm-hmm. like we're giving better health care. So there is some gross inefficiencies that can be solved partly by technology, but partly by a single-payer system going at all the increased costs. So what what is your sort of big-picture understanding of, of why that is? Why is the spending volume in the United States so high when the outcomes don't seem particularly good? My understanding comes from Elizabeth Rosenthal's book, American Sickness. So it's a, it's a book I highly recommend, where she looks at uh, both the role of hospitals and the profits that hospitals are making with charging a facility fee. In other words, we've all had the experience that if you go to a doctor's office and get a procedure, and if you get that same procedure at an urgent care or at a hospital, the hospital cost will be 10 times as much as the doctor's office because these hospitals basically have a facility fee uh, baked in. And some of these hospital CEOs are making $2 million, $3 million, $6 million. So looking at the hospital costs, looking at insurance costs and how much uh, Aetna CEO, who's paying for the $59 million that uh, that CEO is making, looking at uh, the costs of pharmaceuticals and the extraordinary profits uh, that some of the pharmaceutical companies are making because of uh, patents, uh, and then looking to some extent at the the cost of doctors and salaries of uh, uh, of doctors. But I think that the the whole system has been uh, gamed towards uh, benefiting certain. Uh, Uh, private sector uh, actors. So do you buy the argument, though, that we get some useful innovation, for example, in the pharma sector or in the medical devices sector from the fact that we are paying these high prices? I mean, there are big profits there, but those profits drive investment and that if we sort of go down to international norms, that that will sort of Kill, kill the goose that, that lays the innovation eggs? No, partly because I think international prices may go up if mm-hmm. uh, if if we, we shouldn't be bearing uh, uh, the brunt of it. Second, America was, first. Um, uh, there, there's a uh, NIH study that shows 216 of the 216 uh, drugs in the last five years that got FDA approval started with NIH funding. So you also have a question of what is the, the balance, right? If we have savings from the federal government because we aren't paying as much through Medicare uh, for drugs to the private sector, and you directed all of that funding to doubling the NIH budget, then uh, you you could argue that, okay, there will be less private sector spending, but we're going to have all these more uh, investment in Nobel laureates. I, I guess I get the answer is unclear to me whether uh, that would lead to more or less innovation. Uh, third, there's a professor, uh, Darren Asimoga at uh, MIT, who had a great paper who argues, yes, if you're spending more money in the private sector, yes, marginally, you're getting more innovation, but it's not innovation necessarily that's public health directed. So you mm-hmm. may be getting a lot of innovation in something that uh, helps uh, me sneeze less or makes my skin less dry, but that doesn't mean that it's actually tackling the massive public health problems for the world or for uh, for our nation. And so you may uh, want to have some public direction of that. And then the final point is, at some point, there's a, a question of equity. And, mm-hmm. and even if you have 
some slight trade-off. I think the balance right now has been uh, tilted so far away from equity. Right. And I mean, you know, so, right, you're saying when you have a market-driven system, right, it encourages you to develop uh, a medication that marginally improves on a problem that a large number of relatively affluent people have, right? That's a clearer way of putting what I was trying to say. (laughs) Because it's good, right? So it's like, I don't know, like nobody likes acne, right? So it's like— I was thinking the same thing. So it's (laughs) like if you make an acne medication that's a little bit better than the current best one, you can sell a lot of that. Right. But if you look like big picture, is this like a pressing social problem? Exactly. It's It's not great. Right? Like, if you could wave a magic wand and fix it, you you would. Right. But, like, intense, like, life-threatening illnesses that impact relatively small numbers of people just don't drive that much investment because the market's not big. Exactly. And so if you're looking at uh, having greater public investment in the research there – uh, and public incentives to, to companies to, to to take that to market because you can't just have scientists. Then that may be uh, a, a good policy, right? So we could we could drive the research at problems of social significance, right? right? I mean, I guess my my view of uh, the markets versus the government is that the government tends to do disruptive innovation that doesn't have immediate returns. Well, and you know, one of the things that bothers me so much is when people just disparage the government. And I said, the government has been one of the greatest engines of economic growth, our government, in hi- history, right? We invent- we created the satellites. We created the internet. We created GPS. We sent a person to the moon. We uh, have instituted one of the most remarkable sets of, of rules of law. And so uh, the, the, the fact is that the government is capable of uh, doing an extraordinary amount even in the issue of, of innovation. So, okay, let's... Uh, Talk a little bit of, of politics here. Uh, so yeah. you you are a supporter of, of Bernie Sanders' I campaign. I am a proud um, supporter. Do, do, do you, Bernie, uh, like like this bill, like this idea, federalism? I I, uh, I haven't talked to him about it. My uh, assumption is that he would be supportive. I mean, he would say we, we need to, on day one, uh, fight for Medicare for all. But if I told him that, look, Vermont may have had a better chance of succeeding based on this, I, th- I, I don't think he would oppose Oppose the idea. Sure, sure. Um, but the, you're you're talking. This is like a I don't quite want to say a fallback. Uh, but you you are looking in a world where there may not be majority support in in Congress for that kind of comprehensive legislation. I, I'm looking at a world where we've won in Medicare for all since Harry Truman, where Jimmy Carter campaigned on it in 1976, and we still are nowhere close to getting it. And so I'm saying we need to have activism uh, across states. We have to have activism across the country, and we need an all-of-the-above approach. And it would be probably naive to think that we're going to have a moment that everything is going to be done without state activism being allowed as as Mm -hmm. well. Before before I let you go, I I usually like to ask guests here, uh, what what do you wish I had asked you here? What what should we have been talking about? I I, uh, wish we were talking about why the politics of Medicare for all have become controversial given our democratic history. I mean, when you had when you have uh, people like Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter both running on this, and it being assumptive back in the seventies 
that this was going to save money and this was the uh, goal of the Democratic Party from Harry Truman on. When you have Daniel Patrick Moynihan, after all the Clinton hearings, turning to Lawrence O'Donnell, his aide, and saying, well, I guess the only thing that's going to work is uh, getting rid of 65 for the Medicare statute and having Medicare for all. It's surprising to me that in the year 2020, we're still having a debate that that is the goal of progressives. So what, what do you think accounts for that? I mean, why why the change? Because you're right. I mean, a lot has gotten done on health policy in the past 20 years, but it does seem like what used to be, I don't want to say uncontroversial, but it was like the standard thing that progressive Democrats would say has now become a, a, a hot button. Right. I mean, it was funny to me when President Obama, who I have enormous admiration for, described Medicare for all, all as one of the good new ideas of the, the progressives. And, you know, this idea is one of the oldest ideas of the uh, Democratic Party. But I, I guess my, and there are probably smarter people than me who have thought about this, but my sense is that there's so much of the uh, federal GDP that is now tied up with this, 17% of the economy. And it was probably a much smaller number in the 1970s. So transforming uh, a much larger sector of the private sector and having much more profits that are at stake have made the politics far more complicated than they were in the 70s. Right. But you think that's that's not a good reason to change the goal? No, I don't think it's a good reason. I think it's just a, a, a reason of more uh, special interest and and more and more special interest from a crass political perspective and from an intellectual perspective, having the government uh, rearrange a larger uh, sector of the economy is always more difficult. So it's it's almost like we're the goal every year we don't achieve the goal is probably making the goal harder given the inflationary costs of healthcare. All right, fantastic, uh, Congressman Rokana. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks as always uh, to our sponsors, our engineer Malachi Brodus, our producer Jackson Bierfeld, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.